So here we are, back in Samuel, 1 Samuel 24, trusting God in all things. If you want to turn your Bibles to that chapter, that's on page 296, but don't worry, it will also be on the slides behind me as we come to the different sections of that chapter and read it together. So this is the next part of our evening services, looking at 1 Samuel, and just Just for those who haven't been for some of the early ones, here's a quick, and for those who have as well actually, here's a quick recap. So we began by looking at how the Israelites had asked God for a king, exemplifying our passion for finding substitutes for God. Saul becomes king, but he stopped listening to God. So God rejected him and began the process of lining up his successor, David, in whom he had seen the heart of a leader, a heart for God. More recently, we looked at David and Goliath when Nathan spoke to us. David was passionate for God's hunger, for God's hunger. (laughs) David was hungry for God's honour and glory. He was unafraid because he trusted in God's power and he was able to walk and live in the certainty of God's ultimate victory but Saul had begun to hate David because of the success God was giving him and began to pursue him to kill him so God gave David a close sense of his presence and also his provision and time and again his protection whilst he was on the run most recently when Simon preached I think it was three weeks ago we looked at Saul And the contrast between him and David. Saul sought to defeat God's will and was self-reliant, whereas David was God-dependent and sought to walk in his will. And we asked ourselves, what do we try to do in our own strength rather than trusting in God's strength? Today we have another story about David and Saul to help us grasp the trustworthiness of God and our call to obedience. It's a great story, and like David and Goliath, there is a twist in the tale, just as we've been singing about the weak made strong. Again, here in this chapter, God is turning the tables. I've actually really enjoyed the privilege of looking into this passage and preparing this talk. Whenever I do that, I'm always struck at how much the Bible just holds together. 66 books written by 40 different human authors inspired by God over 1,500 years, and yet we can just trace the links between quite different parts of it, revealing the theme of God's love for all mankind and his message of reconciliation, and each link or thread strengthening the fabric of the overall message. We don't have time to touch on all of these links tonight, but I encourage you to read this passage again when you get home during next week. And reflect on the narrative and the echoes of the good news that you will hear in it. So 1 Samuel 24. The chapter breaks naturally into into three parts. There's a set-up bit, and then what David says, and then how Saul responds. So like a three-course meal, we will split it up and ruminate briefly between courses. I'll read the first bit, the starter. And later I have helpers lined up to read David and Saul's words. 
Saul, just, uh, just to set the scene, Saul has been hunting David and his 600 or so followers who have been moving about, avoiding capture. Last time we read as Saul was closing in on David, he had to call off his search and go and fight some Philistines, some raiders. This was another example of God's protection of David. So here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Caves in that area would have been great places to hide a number of men. Water and food nearby, lookouts posted at entrances, Maybe links between caves to offer a route out, or just darkness and practiced silence. Imagine you were one of David's men's. Maybe you were posted as lookout in the cave there. Just hiding the entrance to the cave, all David's men hidden in the darkness behind you, peering out from behind there and just thinking, who's that coming into the cave? There was a man coming in. Was that Saul? It was. It was Saul. What am I going to do? What would you do next? Don't worry, I haven't done a video of what happened next in the story. Let's just say it was a relief for all concerned. But what this part of the story does tell us about the character of David, we might be like David's men, seeing an opportunity in a coincidence and getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Do we sometimes read our wishes into a situation and then try to fit them to have come from God? This is what his men said. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. David had a strong sense of God's honour and didn't cave in to peer pressure, if you'll pardon the pun. His words to his men would have been strong words. Whispered, but emphasised with the eyes maybe, I imagine, to minimise noise. The words of the men may well have been true, But their interpretation was wrong. We'll see later, David did deal with Saul as he wished, but not by murder 
as the men had maybe been hoping. Had he killed Saul, he would ultimately not have commanded the respect of his men. And you only have to look at the example of Michael Gove to see that. They now see in him the honour he places in God as the appointer of kings and thus the only one with the right to end their reign. Even cutting off the corner of the robe immediately had David worried about how presumptuous that might have been and how disrespectful to the position of king that God had established. David knew what God had promised him when he was anointed by Samuel some time ago, that he would be king. And he trusted God to bring that about. He knew he wasn't to sin by killing Saul to get there, just as Jesus, when tempted in the desert, knew that disobedience was not the way to victory. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdom of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If we have an opportunity, we think that God has provided, but see that it requires us to be disobedient to God or dishonor him in our behavior to achieve it, probably best to think again. David's principled stance spoke volumes to his men who are a lot more opportunistic. And he was principled enough not just to not kill Saul himself, but to hold back anything up to 600 men who might have been tempted to have taken advantage of the situation. It could have ended there. They could have stayed hidden in the corner of the cave, let Saul and his men leave and head off in the opposite direction. But David knew he had to take it further. And not without risk. Let's read on now. Stuart is going to come up and read to us what David did next. Thank you. So uh, from verse 8, we pick it up. When David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down, prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave me you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See, There is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand.
Again, put yourself in the place of one of David's men. Imagine what you might have thought, witnessing your leader, who you had seen creep up to Saul with a sword in his hand, only to cut off a corner of his robe, now lying down in front of Saul. What is going to, going on? How is this going to work? Watch and see. At work, in courses on negotiation, we talk about zero-sum games. I win, you lose. You win, I lose. Brexit votes, for example. Knockout competitions like Euro 2016 or Wimbledon. Binary decisions, in or out. Penalty or no penalty. King David or King Saul. But David wasn't seeking win-lose here. He was seeking win-win, reconciliation. We think we value tough negotiators, don't we? But wise negotiators find the win-win. And that can mean helping the other party see the bigger picture and also finding them a way out of the win-lose approach they may be adopting in case they can't handle losing. Look at the respect that David gives Saul. My Lord, the King, and Father, in verse 11. There's no mockery here, but rather emphasising relationship and respect. It works because Saul will echo that later. It wasn't one of the most dispiriting things about arguments over Brexit or Remain, the lack of respect in others' opinions that was shown by some people. On any topic... We all have a line, as far as we might be prepared to take something. But we don't all have the same line. How we treat those, the other side of the line to us, should matter. Notice in verse 9, David here suggests Saul is listening to others. Why do you listen when men say... And it's actually Saul himself from whom the idea of David harming him comes. It's easier now that David has said this for Saul to say, they were wrong, rather than I was wrong. David is beginning to give him an opportunity to find a way out. Then he places himself in Saul's viewpoint, saying, you have seen. And he points him to God, the Lord delivered The Lord's anointed. May the Lord judge. May the Lord avenge. Decide. Consider. Vindicate. David lays it out. But he does so with mercy and kindness. Yet firmly reminding Saul that God is at the centre. He could have found a way out himself, couldn't he? Just by stabbing Saul earlier. Yet he placed his trust in God. Through the corner of the robe that David cut out and showed to Saul as proof of his kindness in not killing him, God was actually talking to Saul, cutting to his heart as deep as any sword from David would have done, saying effectively, look, I am cutting away your royal authority. If you turn back ten pages to page 286 in the church bibles or chapter 15 verses 27 and 28 let me just read these two verses 
As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Here, Saul had not obeyed God's instructions. Like David, he had had an opportunity, but unlike David, he had put his, not God's, flavor on it. And Samuel had just told Saul that he had rejected the word of the Lord, and because of that, God had rejected him as king over Israel. So Saul tears a piece of Samuel's robe. And again, here is a piece of torn robe in front of him, right before his eyes, reminding him of that earlier event and Samuel's prophecy. He sees it in the hand of the one better than him, and it cuts him to the core. Now, David wouldn't have known about that episode. He wasn't there. It was before Samuel had actually anointed David. But God is using him to talk directly to Saul. Let's see how Saul responds. Steve is now going to come and see Saul's, read us Saul's response. This is verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord gave gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Thanks, Steve. So David gives his oath, gives Saul a way out, a win-win in this negotiation. Saul recognized he could have his family name wiped from the face of the earth. In fact, David had already said to Jonathan, his son, that that wouldn't happen. But Saul is a wretched figure now. He may have 3,000 men just around the corner, a five-to-one majority to actually have his way and kill David and all his men. But he also sees that God is with David, and this is actually the first time that he admits it, and that he has become like Goliath, one who defies God and is overcome by God through the obedience of David, who walks with God. He knows any resistance would be futile. Significantly, Saul recognizes that his fight to remain king will not succeed. David also knows that while God is with him, the transition to his rule is not through humiliating Saul further or trusting him when he's proven so untrustworthy. Forgiven, yes, but Change of heart in Saul? 
He'll need to demonstrate that with his actions, not just his words. And David is sensible enough to give him space to do that. Saul leaves with his men. David goes in the other direction. And we'll see later in the series how Saul gets on with that. Part of me wants to marvel at David's negotiation skill here and to pick out examples to follow. That's just like when we read David and Goliath, isn't it? And we want to be David, don't we? And finding our own Goliath and winning, battling against the odds. But this is not about what can we learn as three top tips for successful negotiation in all areas of life. It is about remembering that the hero of this story is God. And that if anything, we'll get it when we see that our part is not even playing one of David's henchmen, but Saul. Listen again to Saul's words, because in this story we could look at ourselves. Coming to a realisation that you have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. David's actions here are a foreshadowing of the grace that Jesus has shown us in the way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Saul, though a sinner, saw God's goodness in David in his principled and submissive approach. So in David, from the corner of a cave, using the corner of a robe to corner King Saul, we see a glimpse of the king who is the cornerstone. From the corner of a cave, using the corner of a robe, to corner a human king, we see a glimpse of the king who is the cornerstone, Jesus. In Jesus' ministry on earth, we can see so many examples of his skill in negotiation with those who are hunting him down, trying to trick him, far too many to cover here. But like this story, all of them pointing to the ultimate negotiation as he laid down his life in obedience to God that we might live with him. The win-win. On the cross and through the empty tomb, he turns the tables. Death is swallowed up in victory. God's message to us in the Bible is like a recurring theme in a piece of music, repeated and developed as it weaves its way through the symphony. I love you. I want to be reconciled to you. I am willing to die for you that you may know the joy of sins forgiven and life lived in obedience. What's our response to Jesus going to be? Will we go on fighting him? Or will we let his good news break through and daily accept his kingship in all areas of our lives? Earlier in the service we sang, You are my hiding place, which comes from one of David's psalms. And as David and his men walk up to the stronghold, he's probably starting to write another psalm, thinking, you are my stronghold. His trusting God takes these physical items around him and uses them to remind him that God's presence and provision and protection are more real and more trustworthy than anything else. Even more powerful the things he can see and touch. 
So as we come to the communion table tonight, we too can take physical symbols of bread and wine to remind us of Christ's love for us, that while we were still sinners, he laid down his life for us. Where should we place our trust? In ourselves? In others? In no one? In our belongings? In our bank? Or in God? What can you trust to wash away your sin and make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So as we come to the communion table, we'll just pause for a minute or so now and reflect on this proverb before Wellesley comes up and leads us in communion. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. David knew that. May we know that as well.